0: What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Fan Section Podcast. My name is Tyson. I'm normally joined uh, regularly by my good friend, Alan. He is, unfortunately, still under the weather, but doing better. Spoke with him earlier this week, and he's hoping to join us again for the podcast that will preview Week 4's college football games coming up this coming weekend. But I'm riding solo here again i uh, going to run through this week three uh, recap, and, man, there were some exciting games, some exciting takeaways. I uh, look forward to diving into it with you here. Uh, so first of all, I heard a comment after watching the UCF-Louisville game that struck me as kind of surprising initially, uh, and that was from the Louisville head coach said after their win over UCF, that they had played, that was Friday night, that they had played three games in 12 days. And I was like, wow, that sounds like a lot of games in a short period of time. And then I looked, and it was Monday, that Monday game, you know, that they had against um, um, Ole Miss on that first weekend of college football. Then they played last Saturday, and then this past Friday. Um, and, And then I thought, well, it's only 12 days. Normally the spacing would be, I suppose, 14 or 15, so... It didn't seem like quite as big of a deal once I had uh, sort of noodled my way through it. But, man, that that Louisville-UCF game was a real fun one. Unfortunately, uh, and we'll get into this a little bit later, Dylan Gabriel got injured, and it does not look great for him. Uh, Some other sort of big, uh, high-level takeaways from this past weekend. Uh, I can't imagine the last time, but Alabama, Clemson, and Oklahoma – All won by a combined, combined 15 points. Insanity. The top teams in the country really got some scares this weekend. It was a ton of fun. And the two teams that scared Oklahoma and Clemson, uh, their opponents, both unranked, have a combined record now of three and four. Does that mean that maybe there's a little more equity from top to bottom across college football? Maybe so. Alabama certainly seemed mortal after this weekend. And many of the other teams at the very top of the rankings, the teams that looked very dominant, looked um, pretty mortal as well. And I have to announce, two weeks after I proclaimed right here that Florida State had found their coach in Mike Norvell, yikes. There doesn't seem to be any more, uh, any coach on more of a hot seat than Mike Norvell at this point. 0 uh, 3 for the first time is Florida State since 1976 after their. Um, and Florida State uh, is only favored in two of their last nine games so it could get real ugly real quick if they don't turn a corner now the ACC doesn't look too uh, imposing this this year but, but we will see their offense after putting up 38 points against Notre Dame they only were able to muster 17 points against Jacksonville State in that loss and 14 points in their loss this last weekend against uh, Wake Forest, uh, I have seen that there are rumors of of people trying and hoping to recruit Deion Sanders to coach at Florida State. I mean, I get it; he, I think, he would be fantastic uh, recruiting tool. But I, he it just barely started coaching, and he's coaching uh, at an FCS program, and so not really much of a track record there. So, I, 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 I would think a program like Florida State could pull. A more establishing than that but again I mean that's kind of a hometown hero I suppose. And <laughs> on the other coast, one week after USC was in just complete disarray they fired Clay Hilton after that loss to Stanford. Uh, sure enough, a really bad weekend for the pac-12 South, they just allow USC to come right back into the into the picture. Colorado gets dominated by a a very average Minnesota team. Arizona State lost to BYU. Utah lost to San Diego State. Uh, Arizona lost to Northern Arizona. Um, You know, meanwhile, uh, and UCLA obviously lost as well. Uh, Meanwhile, on the Palouse and Pullman, the interim head coach, Dante Williams, rallied the Trojans. Keaton Slovis went down early with an injury, and wouldn't you know it, their recruiting paid off. They discover freshman quarterback Jackson Dart. He goes 30 for 46, 391 yards and four touchdowns as they went from a tight game in the first quarter to quarter and a half to just blowing the doors off of Washington State. The final there was 45-14. Uh, just, you know, the more things change, the more they seem to stay the same, don't they? And we'll talk more about that Colorado situation later. Oh, my gosh. But first, I want to get into something that I just thought was so enjoyable and fascinating. And that was that Fresno State game against UCLA on Saturday. Oh, my gosh. Um, Fresno State uh, Jake Hainer, um, who transferred from Washington, by the way. They probably could have used him against Montana a couple of weeks ago. But there were five fourth-quarter touchdowns in the game. After Hainer uh, hadn't passed for a touchdown all game, he gets crushed on a pass, suffers a hip injury. If you have a chance to watch the highlights of this game, I mean, it, it was reminiscent of, like, Byron Leftwich. For those of you who are longtime fans that remember him at Marshall and the injury and his players carrying him down the field as he led them uh, to a game-winning drive. But he is just suffering and clearly hobbled and grimacing the rest of the game. He leads Fresno um, to win with two drives ending in pass touchdowns. Just an incredible performance. I've heard heard a lot of people talking about how he may have potentially played. You know, one person in particular I've heard talking about this is Joel Klatt, the former Colorado Buffalo quarterback who's now a a reporter and a a commentator for Fox Sports. Uh, But he was talking about how Jake Hayner, he may have just played himself into uh, the picture of maybe being drafted. uh, Second round, somewhere around there, so... We'll see. His numbers on the game, 39-53 of for 455 yards. And really, as yes, this game down, came down to the stretch, I mean, it was just a, a pass fest. It was this Jake Hayner dueling with Dorian Thompson-Robinson. I mean, it was just, it was a really enjoyable to watch. Uh, continuing with Fresno State, though, the, uh, on the defensive side of the ball, junior defensive back Evan Williams was great. He was a ball hawk. He was all over the field. 12 tackles. Like I said, there was lots of passing in this game, so he had plenty of opportunities. Had four pass deflections uh, and came up big in some big moments. But, you know, moving to the other side of the situation, which would be UCLA, who was riding high, who was ranked in the top 15 after beating LSU two weeks ago. Then they, you know, then they had the bye and then they come into this game. Uh, I've been telling you, Dorian Thompson Robinson is a problem. They've really been getting by because they've been rushing with Charbonnet and Britton Brown for you know, 300 yards, 250 yards a game, which is fantastic. But Thompson Robinson has not had the completion, the completion percentage you would want to see. He has really uh, had some bad misses in the first two games in some pivotal moments and luckily been saved by the running game and his defense. Well, this game, he he really um, it's kind of turned a corner, uh, and, and you got to see a little more... Uh, of, of him uh, ex- excelling, especially as the running game was really struggling. Uh, Dorian Thompson Robinson in, finished with 278 yards, three touchdowns, no interceptions, and another and another 67 yards rushing. Uh, you know, and I, I mentioned, I mean, the story within the story, and I think Dorian Thompson Robinsons do a lot of credit here. Is uh, Fresno State, and I mean, obviously Fresno State is due a lot of credit here, but but UCLA's running game was stifled completely stifled. How many times have I talked about the Duke transfer, Britton Brown, and the Michigan transfer, Zach Charbonnet, now at UCLA, just running roughshod all over teams? Well, in this game, Britton Brown finished with 23 yards rushing. Zach Charbonnet, 19 yards rushing. Um, I mean, that, that that now it's almost like the worm has turned, and the problem is on the other side on the other side, you know. So I would say, you know, it's possible <laughs> that uh, Fresno State, they, they sort of had a similar idea where they said, hey, clearly the strength is to run. We're going to force Dorian Thompson-Robinson to beat us. And maybe that's why they were able to get this great win. That, obviously, in conjunction with Jay Kaner playing incredible. Um, but Fresno State's uh, defense held UCLA to only 117 yards rushing. Uh, UCLA was averaging 252 per game. 252 yards rushing per game. Okay, so that was clearly a focus of Fresno State's defense. I am really excited about this Fresno State team. The Mountain West, all of a sudden, is looking really, really interesting and fascinating. Um, and, you know, don't look now, but Boise State, it, you know, they've only, a lot of people wrote them off after that UCF loss. There's several, there's a handful of really good teams in the Mountain West. It's going to be fun to watch. And I, I've been talking with Alan, I think we want to try and get to. Get to a game, you know, uh, um, whether it be you know Fresno State at Wyoming or somebody visiting Air Force or something along those lines. Uh, but that is a very interesting game. I highly recommend you going back and looking at that if you get a chance. But our next game I want to highlight uh, that took place this last Saturday, and and this is let me just start right now by saying I said in the off season that with all of the transfers and turnover, I don't understand how you build a culture and cohesion at Michigan State. I didn't understand what Mel Tucker was doing. And, uh, man, he, he is looking, <laughs> at least, I mean, in this small sample size, he's looking a little bit like a mad scientist. They are playing really, really well as a team in all, really all phases of the game. Uh, but this Michigan State team won 38-17 to 17 over Miami down in Coral Gables. And, man, that has got to hurt for the Miami fans. Uh, I mean, just a quick uh, highlight about what I was talking about with the transfers. Michigan State has 41 new players on the team this year from, from last season. 41. 27 transfers left. 20 transfers came in. And I know I mentioned this last week, but Peyton Thorne is a dramatic upgrade from Rocky Lombardi last year. Uh, he, he had 261 yards, four touchdowns, no interceptions in this game. He was he was really playing within himself and finding the guys that were open. And in some cases, like they mentioned in the pros, when, when you don't have guys running wide open, you pass guys open. I saw a little bit of kind of that calculus occurring in his game. I don't want really to get too, too crazy about it, but he had a really fantastic game. Um, his counterpart for Miami, Derek King, he is not quite the same after the ACL um, but you know they were they were harping on that a lot during the game broadcast and I, although I think that there is some merit to that the bigger problem with him is decision making I mean on the season he only has three touchdowns and four interceptions he's got nine sacks this guy is any football field in America he steps on he's one of the top five most athletic players. How is he getting sacked nine times? It's overthinking, staying in the pocket, maybe maybe getting happy feet and, and running into uh, a blitzer, you know. Um, but four total turnovers in this game for Miami, all of them can be credited to, to Dear King. Two interceptions, two fumbles. Uh, his stat line for the day, 388 yards and two touchdowns. So he really is... Between the 20 and the 20, he is a Heisman candidate. And then when it comes to sort of that uh, meshing point about can you convert uh, in the red zone, man, he, he, uh, he has some issues, has some problems. Uh, he threw a, a, an interception late in the fourth quarter that really salted this away. And then and then on the subsequent drive, had a fumble in the fourth quarter, uh, just really making things difficult on his defense and on his team. Again, for Michigan State, Kenneth Walker, the running back, Wake for, they they talked about this on the broadcast. Wake Forest, coming out of high school, was his only, his only scholarship offer, for for a, a power five school. How is that possible? This dude is looking incredible. By the way, another caveat: while at Wake Forest, before he transferred to Michigan State, this dude never started a game. He was always a backup. Well. In case you were wondering, he leads the nation in rushing yards right now. So, obviously, uh, you know, people get things wrong. I get things wrong. Coaches get things wrong. Apparently the entire country got this one wrong. But <laughs> this game, he had 27 carries, 172 yards, um, and and a receiving touchdown on top of that. Also, a guy who really kind of arrived uh, as a weapon for Peyton Thorne is Jalen Naylor. Had 82 yards and two touchdowns. He, um, he was really uh, important for Peyton Thorne in some of those difficult, tough situations. Had some good uh, short routes, hook routes that kept drives alive. Um, but the story for Miami is just, they lack discipline. It's really, uh, it's really tough to watch. They get a ton of yards, they have incredible players and they just, they just lack the discipline. They are averaging eight penalties for 76 yards. Um, their they're, they're leading rusher on their team, Cameron Harris, 57 yards per game. That ain't going to cut it. Uh, Miami held them to 55 rushing yards in this game. Um, you know, And, and, and the defense for Miami has given up 427 yards and 35 points per game. I mean, that is really bad. There's really only kind of two <laughs> bright spots that's shown uh, for Miami in this game, and the safety, Bubba Bolden, had 10 big tackles. He was really key for their defense, but he was about the only thing they had working on defense. And then on the offensive side, you know, uh, 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 Charleston Rambo. The Oklahoma transfer uh, ended up with 156 yards and two touchdowns, which is a, just a fantastic outing for a wide receiver, but they, the defense couldn't stop anybody, and four turnovers from De'Ara King, That's tough. Uh, Michigan State did not let their foot off the gas at the end of this game. They had three fourth-quarter touchdowns. They did not just salt away this win. They pounded Miami into the ground. This is a program, Michigan State, that I think is on the rise. They get Nebraska next week, who's much improved, Nebraska. But, boy, I will talk talk about this with the next podcast, but... It's going to be tough for Nebraska to hang with Michigan State if they're playing this well and keeping themselves from turning the ball over. But the next game we're going to talk about is, um, of course, the biggest game of the weekend, which is Alabama playing against Florida. And let me just start by saying this: I mean, Alabama came out of the gate. They started the game with three straight touchdowns. The only thing Florida could muster in that in that sequence was a field goal. I mean, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I flipped the channel for a good 10, 15 minutes after that because I, I thought, I mean, it's done. Like, how many times do you have to watch Alabama beat somebody down? You know, and, and I was just going, oh, my gosh. Um, and all three of those touchdowns, uh, um, let's see, Bryce Young. <laughs> yeah, so um, Bryce Young gets those three touchdowns on only three 13 passes. So those three touchdowns come from 13 pass completions from Bryce Young. Uh, but but then Florida adjusted, you know. They took away the pass, and, and they challenged Alabama to beat them with a run, which is, uh, you know, kind of a new strategy and technique. A lot of people were thinking Bryce Young is the weakness. Let's force him to pass. He's been exploiting everybody. That's obviously what Miami did. And Florida said, you know what? We tried that <laughs> for the first half of the first quarter. We're getting crushed. Let's flip the script a little bit and uh, and man they really did they took the pass away from that point on uh florida uh let's see yeah alabama only had 157 yards of total offense in the second half so that florida defense really stepped up really changed the game changed the script um uh for for alabama but um but for florida and anthony richardson didn't play uh, they cited a hamstring as the issue. It looks like he's questionable for next week, and and Dan Mullen he kept saying things and mentioned like, well, we want to make sure Emory Jones gets every rep this, that, or the other, and you know, I mean, I, I get it, but I mean, this is this is Emory Jones' stat line for the game: eighteen of 28, 195 yards, zero touchdown passes, one interception. Now he did have seventy-seven rushing yards and a touchdown, but Anthony Richardson can get you that, right? I mean, I, that just I don't understand how that's like a clear cut he should be our starter but he really did manage well uh after that first big surge from alabama um, and you know the offense struggled early uh, the first three drives for the offense um, after after their 75 yard uh, drive for a field goal they had interception turnover on downs and punt so i mean that's obviously they didn't have much traction going there but uh but they were able to get it going they kicked it in a year um, the defense stepped up, like I mentioned, and ultimately what it came down to is Florida Florida missed an extra point on a touchdown uh, in the second quarter, and as a result, late in the game, into the game, they had to go for two, and they weren't able to convert it, and you know, then the, the defense bowed up their back. The game is 31-29. Florida had come down, scored a touchdown, put it to 29. They needed the two-point conversion to tie it, and by the way, Alabama was on their heels. Like Florida at the end of this game was coming like a like a wave. And um, and they went for two and they, they, they didn't get it. And so they pumped the ball away. And Florida's defense bowed their back, stood up, and held Alabama again. And in my opinion, I think uh, Nick Saban got boy a little bit extra conservative with the play calling. But hey, I mean he's he's the greatest college football coach. Ever, so you know, I far be it for me to, to challenge uh, his decision making, but ultimately Florida got the ball back, and I mean, this just blew me away. And again, going back to that comment about the discussion between Anthony Richardson and Emery Jones, I saw this in two games on Saturday, and I and my jaw dropped to the floor, I could not believe that it happened, but with the clock running out. And, and granted, I understand Florida had the ball on their own 20-yard line, so there's not a ton of options. It's not like you could – no nobody could throw an 80-yard hill, Mary, right? But you would hope you would at least get a pass out, maybe a hook and ladder, get some get some uh, pitches going. Um, <laughs> but with the clock running out, Emory Jones tried to run the ball on the last play of the game. What did, he, did he think he was going to run for 80 yards? I, I don't – I don't understand this, um, and I, I guess maybe it's a lapse in judgment, but, I mean, I just I can't imagine. Situational awareness. How are you not aware? that I mean, who cares if you get an interception? Throw it somewhere. Anyways, that kind of stuff just really blows me away. Um, but ultimately, Alabama wins the game 31-29. Florida uh, has a, a really interesting matchup coming up. Um, Next with uh, NC State, I think they're probably going to crush them. Um, they're feeling really good coming off of this uh, performance. So we'll see how that goes. But the next game we're going to talk about, again, another top team being a real scare. And this was the Georgia Tech-Clemson game. And Georgia Tech, by the way, lost last season to Clemson 73-7. to Okay, Georgia Tech is not back. They're not good. They, they did that revamp where for years and years they were doing the triple option like a military academy, and now the last two years they've decided they're going to try and move towards like a pro-style passing attack or whatever. Their offense is terrible, um, and and they lost uh, in week one, 22-21, to, to Northern Illinois, who's now 1-2 on the season, okay? Okay. So I'm just trying to give you a picture of this Georgia Tech team. This isn't a scrappy bunch making a comeback. Like, this was an unbelievably embarrassing performance by Clemson. Um, you know, let, let, me, let me caveat or, or, or sort of uh, frame this game also with this context, which is from 2018 to 2020, Clemson offense never had a season or a game with less than 300 yards. In the first three games of the season, they now have two. Two. So is it just that the state of Georgia owns them somehow? I don't understand. I, I would think there's a there's a world of difference between the Georgia Bulldogs and the Georgia Tech Yellow Jackets. But, you know, feel free to let me know if you disagree. But D.J. Uyunglele, 126 yards, that's a quarterback from Clemson, zero passing touchdowns, zero rushing touchdowns. Okay? He did have two fumbles, though. Like... Like this is we are in a completely different hemisphere from the days of Trevor Lawrence at Clemson. The quarterback cannot create on his own. He can't do it. Uh, on the flip side, the quarterback Yates from Georgia Tech, who by the way was a backup coming into the season, okay, uh, was an effective game manager. Twenty of thirty-four, two hundred and three yards. He also didn't have uh, any touchdowns, but uh, but managed the game well. They, they, they made really good decisions. They utilized the punt to flip the field, controlling field position. I, I was really impressed by sort of the, the tactician of Georgia's coaching staff. Um, neither team was able to muster 300 yards of total offense in this game. It was ugly. It was really, really ugly. Um, the, uh, Georgia Tech – so now fast forward to the end of the game. Uh, Georgia Tech – uh, was held on a fourth down. They're they're down at this point. I, I, let's see. It was it was fourteen to six. Clemson had the lead, and uh, and we're down now within twenty seconds of the end of the game. Georgia Tech has marched the ball down the field. They're down to the two yard line, and on fourth down at the goal line with fifteen seconds left, Clemson stops Georgia Tech. And you're going Welsh. It's over. Except Clemson still has to snap the ball from the one-yard line it was probably at that point. And uh, although Will Shipley had a great game, 21 carries, 99 yards, two touchdowns, they dropped him way deep in the end zone, handed it off to him two, two two-and-a-half yards deep in the end zone, uh, and he fumbled the ball getting out of the end zone. It ended up uh, that he was able to recover it. Now, keep in mind here, if Georgia Tech was able to recover that, they would have been able to go for two to try and tie this game. I mean, it was that close to being a tie game. Uh, It it was a fascinating into this game. But uh, Will Shipley's able to jump on it, and it's a safety. So now, with about 10 seconds left in the game, um, there's a free kick from Clemson to Georgia Tech. They field it with a fair catch. This is the other game I'm talking about. Uh, Now, they're, they're, I believe, somewhere around the 30-yard line at this point. And... Uh, Yates, the quarterback, they snap it to him. He runs around. He's looking for somebody open. Can't find anybody. As the clock runs out, he runs the ball beyond the line of scrimmage. Almost to a first down, and as he's getting tackled, he tries to throw the ball. I mean, it's the same thing, like I said, in that previous game with Emory Jones. How, how, what is going through your head? Throw the ball as far as you can throw it. You're not going to run for 70, 80 yards. But anyways, I, you know, in the, in the grand scheme of things, Georgia Tech really played above themselves, and I do think this is a real indictment of Clemson. Uh, ultimately, in the ACC, there's only two teams. Oh, by the way, the final score, uh, Georgia Tech 8, Clemson 14. Uh, now, there's only two teams that remain undefeated in the ACC after three games. One is Boston College, and one is Wake Forest. By the way, Boston College's starting quarterback, I did think they were a good team, starting quarterback, now probably out for the season. Guljerkovic. <laughs> so the ACC's not looking real strong. Clemson, when you look at their schedule, they do not play another ranked opponent all year. They may play one in their conference championship game. Probably will, although North Carolina's lost, Miami's lost twice now. Um, and in the, in the polls, they dropped to number nine behind Cincinnati, which I think is big for Cincinnati, to be honest with you, because Cincinnati's got a tougher schedule the rest of the way. So, I don't see a situation where Clemson could really jump Cincinnati if they stayed undefeated. Um, but with that being said, let's jump right into this Cincinnati Indiana game. Boy, this was just another one in a long line of just really, really great games. Um, Cincinnati starts the game down 14 to nothing. Um, there was a, a Desmond Ritter interception and a fumble. And, and they, you know, they were really, really struggling in the first half. Indiana looked like they, I mean, they had kind of righted the ship. Although Michael Penix wasn't looking fantastic, uh, they were playing a lot more cohesive Indiana was in the first half than we saw them last uh, at Iowa uh, or against Iowa. Uh, but then, you know, with 5-10 left in the first half, uh, Desmond Ritter pulls the team together, rallies them to a nine-play 75-yard drive that ended with a Ford touchdown run, and, uh, and and you thought, okay, now it's 14-7. Indiana, you know, they've got whatever it was, two minutes or so left in the game at that point. You know, go down, get a field goal, go into halftime, up 10 points, right? Wrong. That would be incorrect. Michael Penix, uh, he decided he wanted to throw an interception. And so, obviously, Cincinnati gets the ball back. They march it down the field, and uh, with one second left on the clock, they kick a 32-yard field goal, and it's... Uh, Cincinnati down 10 to 14 at halftime, when it when it probably should have been 7 to 14 at least, or maybe 7 to 17. Um, really, really, <clears throat> really poor execution by Indiana at the end of the second quarter there. So we come out, start the second half, and after exchanging a few punts, Cincinnati puts together a good drive, goes down, scores a touchdown, and take the lead, 17 to 14. And I mean, it was just a real fun game the rest of the way. Uh, Indiana gets the ball back. Michael Penix <clears throat> led a long drive, uh, had a big pass, 44-yard pass to D.J. Matthews, who was huge for him in this game. Uh, and then they get a touchdown and go up 21-17. And so we start this kind of back-and-forth period. Um, uh, and so that's, that's 21-17. Immediately after that, immediately after that, when you think Indiana's taken control of the game back, Uh, Cincinnati's Trey Tucker takes a kickoff return back for a touchdown, puts the score at 23-21. And Indiana then goes down the field, and uh, it finds their way to kick a field goal and goes up 24-23. And, I mean, just a fun back and forth, back and forth. But in the fourth quarter, uh, you know, it's it's winning time. It's what separates the men from the boys. And in the fourth quarter, Indiana had an interception and a fumble. Cincinnati uh, scored two touchdowns, and they pull away with the win, 38-24 over Indiana. Indiana now drops to 1-2 and two on the season. And really, turnovers uh, killed Indiana. They had three interceptions on the game, one fumble. Uh, I don't understand why they're not entertaining another... Potential quarterback option uh, Michael Penix is is really shook, uh, and his his two late interceptions really let Cincinnati back in the game, or not? so sort of middle of the game interceptions gave Cincinnati opportunity to come back into the game. Um, but final stat lines here: Desmond Ritter, twenty of thirty six, two hundred and ten yards, a touchdown, an interception. He had forty five yards rushing and a touchdown really not a fantastic performance out of Desmond Ritter. And I think, uh, you know, it's under underreported or underrated, but Indiana does have a really good defense. But their offense is just a disaster. We're going to talk about another team later who has a similar situation going on. but um, And Cincinnati's running back Jerome Ford, 20 carries, 66 yards, two touchdowns. Two big touchdowns, but, man, that defense from Indiana really held them in the run game. Um the Indiana defense held Cincinnati to only 328 yards. Cincinnati's been averaging 466 yards per game, so the defense is not the problem. Um, but Michael Penix' final uh, stat line here: 17 of 40, terrible for 224 yards. That's average. Two touchdowns, average. Three interceptions. Michael Penix now has 16 or six. I'm sorry, six interceptions already this year. The whole team, Indiana, only had five interceptions all of last season, so you know, still a lot to clean up for Tom Allen. I really, I liked Michael Penix a lot coming into the season, but it, you know, some, at some point you gotta you gotta try and move on. Um, but let's let's keep this uh, storyline going with with uh, high ranking teams that that I feel like really underperformed, and let's move right into Tulsa against Ohio State. Uh, Tulsa, just for those of you who don't know, lost to UC Davis week one, 19-17. Okay, Tulsa's 0-3 on the year. They're not very good. Okay, Uh, and the score of this game at halftime was 13-6. Okay, this was a tight, tight game throughout. It was 27-13 at the end of the third quarter. Uh, a little side note, this was the lowest attendance at a home game at, in Ohio, for Ohio State since 1971. The fans know, okay, Stroud struggled, the defense was weak again. They have the 14th worst pass defense in the country, Ohio State does. Okay, they're giving up 290 pass yards per game. And if you think, well, okay, but maybe they're good at the rush defense. No, they're also giving up 181 rush yards a game. Ohio State's defense is porous. Uh, I know sometimes we get uh, ahead of ourselves and think, oh, no, no, they'll find a way, the Clemsons, the Alabamas, the Ohio State's of the world. No, I, I think, man, I think Iowa, Penn State, um, you know, maybe even Michigan State uh, are really, really rapidly approaching Ohio State. It's not going to be a walk-away Big Ten title for Ohio State this year. I can guarantee you that. Um But Tulsa had a real great standout. Senior wide receiver Josh Johnson, eight receptions, 149 yards, and a touchdown on the day. Really, really played well. Um, And Ohio State just late in the game. So the final score, Ohio State 41, Tulsa 20. You might look at that and say, okay, well, they handled it. No, I mean, it was really window dressing late. They had a late touchdown. And then as they were pressing, pressing, Tulsa was, a late uh, pick six interception for a touchdown. My estimation as I watch this game... Was man, Ohio State really was only about seven points better than Tulsa the entire game, Um, uh, and and Tulsa's quarterback also threw an interception going into halftime. I mean, you take those two interceptions off the board, um, you know, and I think this is a completely different game. But I think uh, let's let's talk the one real bright spot. I think that is worth note. Ohio State, Travion Henderson. Um, had had just an outstanding, fantastic game, 277 yards on the day. That's the third most rushing yards for Ohio State in a game in their program's history, okay? Um, The the most being uh, Trey Sermon a couple years ago, 331 yards. Second most is Eddie George, uh, 314 yards from, uh, what was that, late 90s probably. Uh, Ohio State has a fantastic offensive line, and Mayan Williams, I mean, they've got Master Teague. They've got a great, great setup for a running game. But they're throwing the ball so many freaking times. And C.J. Stroud is not capable of doing that. And their defense is so, so weak. Uh, Ohio State is Akron next week. They're going to dust Akron. and But then, you know, you're moving into Big Ten play. And so we'll see how they can stand up. The next game we're going to talk about is Utah, who, man, Uh, kind of find themselves in a bit of a spiral now. Uh, After their loss in the rival game, rivalry game, the Holy War against BYU, they went and traveled down to San Diego to play San Diego State. And uh, and right out of the gate, San Diego State, three and out, and they punt. And Britton Covey, the wide receiver from Utah, takes the punt back for a touchdown. And you're going, all right, man, okay, Utah, these are both teams that I like generally, but... Uh, you're going okay, Utah man. They're they're swinging, they're slugging. It's a boxing match. They're, you know they're they're taking their shot, and then you settled in to watch basically no offense in the first half. <laughs> After exchanging field goals, um, San Diego State's Jordan Bird uh, takes a hundred yard kickoff return back for a touchdown, and we were tied fourteen or uh, we were tied ten ten at halftime, um, with no offensive touchdowns in the first half. Outstanding defense, if that's what you're looking for in a game. But no offensive touchdowns. Uh, punt return for a touchdown for Covey. Kickoff return for a touchdown for Bird from San Diego State. San Diego State has an outstanding defensive line. Uh, and we told you preseason, San Diego State is the top ten uh, defense in the country. And they were in that backfield making things difficult for Charlie Brewer all day. So, but on the flip side of the ball, San Diego State's uh, quarterback... Uh, Berkshire, or uh, Lucas Johnson was in to replace Berkshire, who was injured last week. Um, and on the first posse- their first possession of the second half, eight, he leads an eight-play, 82-yard drive for a touchdown to go up 10 17-10. Se- uh, um, and Lucas Johnson is mobile, okay? He can move around. He looked really, really good on the day. Um, he, he, the drive was basically a Lucas Johnson run then a Greg Bell run. Lucas Johnson run, Greg Bell run. And that was just, it was like body shot, body shot, body shot, uh, in the second half against, um, against Utah, at least early in the second half against Utah. Um, in the final four minutes, uh, of the third, um, in the final four minutes of the game, um, uh, Cameron, uh, rising, rising. So, so by the way, uh, Charlie Brewer was terrible, okay? Uh, Utah's first possession of the second half, uh, he threw a, a, an interception that they took all the way back to the five-yard line. Uh, they're already down, by the way, 17-10. to 10. This is after that uh, touchdown. Lucas Johnson led San Diego State down the field. Takes the ball all the way back to the five-yard line, and to Charlie Brewer's credit, he chased him down. He threw his body into him and tackled him out at the five-yard line. But... Um, they ended up punching that in, San Diego State did, for a Greg Bell touchdown. And they went up 24-10 to 10 like that. I mean, just like lightning out of the start of the second half. And then on the next possession for Utah, the next two passes Charlie Brewer throws are both almost interceptions. The first one, a lineman's coming into the backfield, tips it straight up. And it's tipped around, almost intercepted. The second one is kind of on a fade route going down the field. The defensive back plays it great, reaches up, almost gets the interception. And so with, with 4.30 left in the third, uh, Kyle Whittingham made the decision. He pulled Charlie Brewer. Yes, the Charlie Brewer. The Charlie Brewer who transferred from Baylor, who many people think may have been one of the most important or best-graded transfers in the off season, pulled him, pulled him in the third. And, you know, we've been talking about this on this podcast, just not understanding the mesh of a gunslinger like Charlie Brewer with a program like Utah. One thing I I wanted to just mention um, that I hadn't talked about before, but just as part of the difference, is when when Charlie Brewer was at Baylor, he was almost always in the shotgun. He might have a running back next to him, but it was four and five wide. He's in the shotgun. At Utah, he's doing 90% of his snaps under center. So they've had some issues with the snaps. They've had some issues. Maybe his maybe his line of sight is not the same as he's trying to back up to see over linemen instead of where he's right in, you know, if he, when he was in shotgun at Baylor, he could survey the field without having to move too much. I don't know what all goes into it, but he looked average, average in the first two games and terrible, really honestly terrible in this game. And so in the uh, final four minutes, uh, Cameron Rising drives the, the Utah Utes down 65 yards for a touchdown. This is the final four minutes of the game, by the way. They miss the extra point. So now they've climbed back to 16 to 24. Okay. Uh, the defense holds, get the ball back. Cameron Rising, again, drives the Utes down 75 yards for a pass touchdown with 16 seconds left on the clock. The Utah are down 22-24 to 24 to San Diego State. and you are I mean, it was an incredible comeback that they mounted. And now they've got to go for two because of that missed extra point earlier. And he rolls out, and there's all kind of receivers moving around. All of a sudden, right as he lobs it to the back of the end zone, you notice that uh, the tight end, Keefe, is just all alone in the back of the end zone. Catches it, two-point conversion good. 24-24, we're going into overtime. This game was really, really fun to watch as well. Uh, in the in the first overtime, both teams just cut right down the field, scored a touchdown, it into second overtime, and you're really feeling like, man, there's all this momentum. How could the defenses stand up? Well, they both stood up. Okay, first, uh, San Diego State holds uh, Utah to a field goal. They kick the field goal. They miss it. Now you're thinking, oh, my gosh, okay, it's basically over, right? Well, Utah holds San Diego State to a field goal. They also miss the field goal. On we go into third overtime. Third overtime now with the new rules is they no longer do uh, sort of the same way they do the first two overtimes. You get the ball to 25 and go, I've got to go in and score Now it's just straight up, we put the ball at the two, two point conversion. And um, uh, on the, on the uh, two point conversion, the San Diego State Aztecs punched it in to go up 33-31. Utah failed on their two-point conversion, and uh, man, I mean, look at the stat line for Cameron Rising, who replaced Charlie Brewer in just a little over you know one quarter and the overtime. 19 of 32, 153 yards, three touchdowns. I mean, what a game! Uh, I just saw in the news today. Charlie Brewer has decided he's leaving the program at Utah, which Okay, I mean, Cameron Rising's the guy, <laughs> and so he was he was going to be sitting on the bench anyway. Um, Cameron Rising also had five rushes for forty six yards. My dude uh, from Utah that I told you before the season, keep your eye on this kid. He could be the uh, uh, pack or the uh, Mountain. Uh, yeah, Pac twelve uh, All Defensive Player of the Year. Devin Lloyd again another thirteen tackles, three tackles for loss. He's now I believe number four in the country. In, in tackles but the, the real story of the day and, and I mentioned this uh, last week but is that man Brady Hoke is really doing a great job with San Diego State they really look like those great teams from 3, 4, year, 5 years ago uh, with Al Pumphrey uh, with uh, Rashad Penny some of those guys um, Lucas Johnson 10 of 19 only 44 yards passing but he had 87 yards rushing Greg Bell 33 carries, 119 yards, two touchdowns. They are just a dynamic duo running the ball out of the backfield. And, you know, don't look now, but the night before Halloween, October 30th, you're going to get a matchup, San Diego State and Fresno State, with Jake Hayner, I just mentioned before. That is going to be an outstanding game. Man, if you can, stay up late and watch these Mountain West games. They are so much fun. And with that being said, we'll move right on into our next game, which was also a very, very fun uh, and exciting game, and that was Arizona State uh, and BYU. Um, Boy, it was just uh, total dominance early on for BYU. Herm Edwards and his offensive staff at Arizona State just could not figure out that BYU defense, which which is really, really a pretty good defense this year. And they were down... 21-7 21 to 7 at halftime. Jaden Daniels was really not uh, making anything happen for their offense. Now they came out hot and made a small push, uh, winning the third quarter 10 to nothing. So they go into the fourth quarter, uh, the game's 21-17. BYU gets the ball back and they're um, they're down or they're up 21-17, but Arizona State is really mounting a comeback. And uh, and Uh, Jaron Hall, who the quarterback for BYU, was really having a pretty good game. But, man, he makes a wrong read, and he throws an interception to Merlin Robinson. And this, I've got to tell you, you need to watch. This was one of the most fun uh, and exciting plays I saw the entire weekend. Uh, Jaron Hall throws an interception. Merlin Robinson from Arizona State takes it back 60 yards, and he's about down to the 15, and you see two guys come into the picture from BYU. One of them is the running back, Tyler Algiers. Chased Merlin Robinson, 60 yards down, jumps up on top of his shoulders and swings like a boxing uppercut and punches the ball out of his hands. He fumbles it back inbounds as those two players fall out of bounds. And who recovers the fumble? The quarterback, Jaron Hall. I mean, you talk about not giving up on a play. Your star running back and your quarterback chase down, and a clear should have been uh, pick six, interception for a touchdown. I mean, it's those kind of plays that that really, I think, make the difference for BYU. And the game, again, was only 21-17 at that point. Arizona State would have gone up 24-21. Instead, BYU gets the ball back. BYU uh, moves the ball a little bit, regains field position. They pump the ball back to Arizona State. Arizona State moves the ball a little bit, fumbles. Arizona State's defense stands tall. They get the ball back, force a punt. Again, still 21-17 at this point. And uh, Arizona State fumbles again with 637 left. Just too many missed opportunities for Arizona State. Um, and just I mean, there's a lot to be said about Arizona State in this game. But ultimately, BYU gets the ball back with 518 left. They mount a 77-yard drive for uh, for a field goal, though no, for a touchdown to push the score to 27 to 17. In this game, ultimately BYU uh, wins the game. In this game, Arizona State had 16 penalties for 121 yards. There were at least three more that were declined by BYU. Arizona State had four turnovers, uh, two interceptions, two fumbles. Uh, I mean, just a really undisciplined, poor performance at Arizona State, but the heart was there on both sides of the ball. Man, th- these two teams were fighting so hard. It was a really, really enjoyable, fun game to watch. BYU gets South Florida next, and, they call- and then uh, Arizona State um, gets a really, really befuddled and beleaguered Colorado-Buffalo team next. It's going to be uh, interesting or potentially really painful to watch that game uh, coming up this weekend. But the next game I want to talk about and highlight is the the night game, the Penn State uh, Whiteout uh, against Auburn, and boy, Penn State just finds a way. You know, it's really incredible. They 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 have a really really solid, incredible defense, uh, and it's just it almost seems like it's some someone different each game that is that is. Bringing them to victory, whether it be Noah Kane, Sean Clifford, Jahan Dotson, um, you know, and you never really know where it's coming. They're just a real fun, exciting bunch to watch. And a quick little side note: coming into this game, I mean, if if the uh, graphic on uh, ESPN was correct, which I assume that it is, but I mean, it, it, this statistic is just uh, incredible. If it is coming into this game, Penn State is twenty-three of 23 for 23 versus the SEC. So I suppose, as I'm thinking real time, I suppose it's a 500 record coming in. So, uh, But that would turn to 24 uh, and 23 after this game. Sean Clifford played really well. Uh, 28 of 32. I mean, that's exceptional completion percentage. 280 yards, two touchdowns, and an interception. He really played within himself except for that one interception. Um, This game was really back and forth. Uh, Back and forth, back and forth. Uh, Penn State was up 21-10 going into the third, which was the largest lead to that point. Um, And, you know, and uh, Bo Nix really was... Uh, was able to mount a comeback. Um, you know after Auburn hold, held Penn State to a turnover on downs, Auburn cashed in on a field goal uh, and they pushed the, pushed the game to 21 to 20 early in the fourth quarter. Um, then Penn State responds with a nine play to 75 yard drive uh, for a touchdown. And that, that's, when, that's what just sort of put it away at that point. 28 to 20 uh, was the final score. It was really neat to watch the contrast in styles. The, the real collision I think was sort of the Auburn run offense against that Penn State uh, gnarly defense uh, ultimately I mean Penn State is cooking the grease they are playing really really good a really really good brand of football right now and I mean I, I think you know it, you know Penn State and Iowa are as intriguing and as exciting of of teams as we have in the country right now um, But uh, the junior linebacker Brendan Smith led the way for Penn State with 10 tackles, two tackles for loss. Auburn played admirably. I think Auburn's gonna, you know, need to be reckoned with in the SEC. But they're not. They're not. uh, They certainly didn't seem to be uh, on on the caliber to take a swing at say Georgia, maybe even Florida now or Alabama. Bo Nix. I mean, the story is he's the same Bo Nix. Same Bo Nix. 21 of 37, 185 yards. Zero touchdowns at 29 yards rushing. Um, you know, he'll keep you in some exciting games, but he's he's not going to cash it in to win for you. Uh, something to look forward to, though Penn State at Iowa on October 9th. Wow, that one is going to be fun. Um, and then I've got to talk about, oh my gosh, let me think about how I want to do this. So let's start here uh, with what highs. Uh, can be extracted for Minnesota from this game. Uh, this would be the Minnesota visiting the Colorado Buffaloes. Um, Minnesota is who they are. Okay, they're, they're not all that much unpredictable. Tanner Morgan didn't force anything, but also not that impressive. 11-17, 164 yards on the game. Uh, they have a massive offensive line who just completely manhandled our defense, Colorado's defensive line. And uh, the running back, uh, Trayson Potts, uh, now has uh, 333 yards and five touchdowns in two games, coming in to replace uh, Muhammad Ibrahim. And boy, me and many, many others had uh, kind of (laughs) thought that they were marked for death uh, after Ibrahim went down, especially with Chris Bell being questionable for this game. Well, Bell ended up playing... He had some pretty good catches, some important moments. Um, There's just not a ton you can derive from Minnesota uh, when you consider what happened on the other side of the ball. Um, Colorado's offense was just, uh, I think probably the most accurate word to use is impotent, just completely non-existent. Um, How do I want to talk about this? Uh, So last week, Miami of Ohio quarterback Brett Gabbard uh, against Minnesota threw for 201 yards and two touchdowns. Let me say that again. Last week, Miami of Ohio quarterback Brett Gabbard threw for 201 yards. This weekend, Brendan Lewis threw for 55. Brett Gabbard threw for two touchdowns. Brendan Lewis threw for zero. Uh, Brendan Lewis's QBR for the game was 3.1, okay? Um, you know, I don't want to bag on Brendan Lewis, okay? He's a freshman, and this is what I've been telling people, okay, uh, these last couple of days, is this is not... Now, I understand for us as fans, this is brand new. We, you know, we didn't know that Brendan Lewis was not capable like this or whatever but it's exceptionally likely that he's the exact same guy that he was all off-season. Okay, so the coaches know and have known for months and months, five months now, that he's not capable of passing the ball. Now, it would be one thing if he was throwing for a bunch of yards but had all kinds of interceptions, like with Michael Penix. You can try and work that out, but at least you know he has the capability of production. That's not the case here. I don't know if, if he's so concerned or worried he's not throwing for interceptions he's not creating a bunch of turnovers he just is making really really poor decisions and too afraid to throw the ball he's holding on to it way 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 too long you know what let's let's uh, let's compare uh, last week to this week from Miami of Ohio okay against the same Minnesota defense total yards Miami of Ohio 341. Colorado, 63. Points scored by Miami of Ohio on Minnesota, 26, Colorado, 0. Okay, um, I, I'm emphasizing that it's Miami of Ohio because they're not a very good team. But if you don't believe that, they're they're 0-2 on the year, okay? They have yet to win a game. So let that sink in a little bit. Uh You know, a lot of people have mentioned to me, well, you know, the defense didn't play well either. Well, yeah, I mean, when you look at the score, we lost, Colorado lost uh, 30 to nothing to Minnesota. But it was only 13 to nothing at halftime. So that's an average of a little bit less than a touchdown per quarter. It was only 20 to nothing after, after the third quarter. Same thing, average of a little less than a touchdown per quarter. Now, as I look over the data and the statistics for all the teams in the country, 28 points for the game, which is an average of a touchdown a quarter, is probably a little bit of, a little bit below average, right? So it's the de- it would as a defensive performance, it would be a little bit better than average. Okay, not great, but a little bit better than average. Okay, but then you consider why is it then that that uh, that the defense didn't perform as well? Well, Minnesota controlled the time of possession. 40 minutes to 19 and a half minutes, okay? So Colorado's defense was on the field for almost 20 more minutes, 20 more minutes. They almost played two lengths of a game. Colorado's defense did, okay? Um, Colorado's offense had seven three and outs, eight punts, two turnovers, four sacks. Jared Broussard and Alex Fonteno, who we know are fantastic athletes, Uh, only ran the ball for a combined eight carries. Eight carries. They only carried the ball eight times. Why? Why is that? Questions that don't have great answers, I guess. But, so let's look. Injuring the game, Colorado's offense had the 22nd fewest yards per game in the country. After the game, Colorado's offense now has the 5th fewest yards per game in the country. Entering the game, Colorado's offense had the 26th fewest points scored in the country. After the game, the 4th fewest points scored. So, let me just explain. What that means is there are only three teams in the entire country in Division 1 football who have scored fewer points on the season than Colorado. And remember, we racked up a bunch of points against Northern Colorado. Okay? So keep that in mind. That is abysmal, terrible, despicable, really, really bad. Okay, on the defensive side of the ball, though, coming in, Colorado had the 20, they were ranked the 25th best defense in total yardage allowed. After the game, they're still almost in the top third of total uh, yardage allowed uh, per game, which, considering they played almost two full lengths of a game on the defensive side of the ball, is really pretty impressive. Coming into the game, the Colorado defense had allowed, they were the number four defense in the country in points allowed. After the game, they're still a top 25 defense in the country in points allowed. Okay? So the defense did not perform as well as they had been. But the mark that they were setting was exceptional, was top tier in the country. Okay? Or right thereabouts. Okay? Colorado, right now, has the third-fewest passing yards per game in the country. Third-fewest passing yards per game in the country. Colorado's longest passing completion on the season is 23 yards in Week 1 against Northern Colorado. They only have one passing touchdown all year. Let me repeat that. In three games, Colorado has only one passing touchdown. Let's let's put a little context on that. Army. Army, a team who only passes the ball 6% of their plays. They run the ball 94% of their plays. They've only passed the ball 13 times in all their games this year. They have four passing touchdowns. Colorado only has one. Okay, Colorado doesn't have a single receiver through three games who on the season has more than 50 yards receiving. It's a it's a real, real, real problem. This is not, well, we had a poor performance. Well, we're gonna work on some things. No, no, no. This is like really, really bad. Carl's offense is one of probably the five worst in the country. It's not okay. So, with all of that as a backdrop, this brings me to the point I'm getting at. Okay. Uh, Darren Cheverini is the offensive coordinator. Okay. He began as a receivers coach, was co-offensive coordinator for several years, uh, a couple of years now, offensive coordinator. Okay, Now, let me start by giving him some praise. Okay, Rivals.com has ranked him as a top 25 recruiter in 2018, 2019, and 2020. There is not any question in my mind that he is an exceptional recruiter. He's recruited the likes of Steven Montez, Lovisca Chennault, Jared Broussard, okay, these are great athletes. He has done a great job getting out of our state, going to different areas, finding good athletes, bringing them home, okay? But let me just paint a picture for you. He took over as co-offensive coordinator in 2018, okay? So let's just juxtapose and put side-by-side years 2017, 18, 19, and then 2020 to the present. I combined 2020 and the three games this year because... There were only six played last year, three this year. That's nine. It's closer to the sample size uh, of the other ones, which are twelve games. In some cases, thirteen. Okay. In 2017, Colorado's offense averaged 417 yards per game. The next year, Darren Cheverini became a co-offensive coordinator. They went from 417 to 392. In 2019, 388. In 2020 to the present, 354. Every year, every year, total yards per game has gone down by measurably uh, under Darren Chevroni's offensive tutelage. How about passing yards per game? In 2017, before he was an offensive coordinator, 260 yards Colorado averaged per game. In 18, 249. In 19, 238. And 2020 to the present, we are averaging 164.7 passing yards per game. Disgusting. That's just flat-out disgusting. Okay? Points per game. Points per game on offense. 2017, before Chavarini took over, we were averaging 28.8 points per game. Then in 2018, when he becomes a co-offense coordinator, from 28.8 to 27, 2019, it was 23.5, and in 2020 to 20, to the present, 23 and a half. Every measurable has been tanking every year consistently since Darren Cheverini has taken over as an offen- a co-offensive coordinator and many of the metrics, passing yards per game specifically, when he was the sole offensive coordinator. You go from 238 to 164, 164 yards per game. I mean, what happens there? Right? And the argument is, well, we, you know, we went from a more consistent quarterback like Steven Montez to Sam Neuer, and now we have Brendan Lewis. It's like, okay, well, didn't you recruit these guys? How do you not have somebody to replace them? So at some point along this discussion, Coach Cheverini needs some accountability in this. Okay, Carl Durrell has experience as an offensive coordinator at the college level. Okay? He also has experience as a wide receivers coach and quarterbacks coach in the NFL. Hmm, those seem like two positions important to improving your passing game. Now is the time. Now is the time. Do not waste another moment. Carl Durrell must take over as a play caller for the remainder of the season for Colorado. Otherwise, this can get really, really ugly. And for Coach Cheverini, listen, you are a fantastic recruiter. You can certainly stay and be our head recruiting coordinator if you'd like. Otherwise, bye. Thank you for allowing me that moment just to discuss my team and some of my frustrations with my team. And with that being said, uh, get, into the, um, get into the mailbag. Make sure to like and subscribe. If you have any input, feel free to let us know. And we're going to continue to grow. We're going to continue to try and bring you what it is that you want to know and what you want to hear. And hopefully the next time you hear uh, this podcast, Alan will be back and we'll be previewing week four with a real great slate of games coming up.